Yeah, so the next time I asked for a ride, I didn't get one. No, that's that's when you look at the other people and say, I meant to do that. Yeah, I meant to. Exactly. Well, yeah, that's what you do when your lights are on and they look at you. You just speed through the light and go on to some fake call <laughs> Drive. somewhere, right? <laughs> Drive like hell. Hey, um, let's. I want to start progressing into talking about your books, but I want to talk about um, your time on the marshals. When you look back, wh- what's like one of the most impactful cases or impactful uh, investigations or things that you did? Because when we had Billy Sarukas on, we talked about the DC sniper. Um, you know, just I mean, you guys do some just fantastic work. You've got some great technology. We talked earlier, Blur Dean, when he used to run the TOG. Uh, the tactical operations group. Some of the stuff you guys do with phones, and I mean, just amazing stuff. When you look back on it, what's like one or two? What's one or two things that just really stick out to you, and you think back and you go, "I'm glad." Maybe it wasn't the biggest case, but you look at it and you go, "That one made a difference." I really like that one. You've got, have you got one or two like that? Yeah, sure. You know, it's interesting, and I'm, I'm actually in the book I'm working on now. I'm making a, a comparison to, to. You know, one of the things I really liked about the Marshal Service is you could start your day working with all kinds of tech, especially in Alaska and North Idaho, working with all kinds of technical equipment. Back when I was starting, it was pagers and things like that. So now, and that's kind of a cool thing is I, in the Clancy books, I could talk about pager technology and all that, that we don't really use now. So it's not sensitive anymore, but working with phones and, you know, and, and computers and all kinds of stuff. And then two hours later, be tracking somebody boots on the ground through bear country up here and, and really have to do it the old way. And so I, I really like that. I, I kind of gravitated towards rural work because yeah, we still use cell phone technology. We still use all that stuff, even in rural areas as, as far as tracking people and even social media stuff, but we don't, um, we really have to rely on knowing how to physically man track and that sort of thing. I would so early on in my career, I really enjoyed the the high tech, you know, using pagers, using cell phones when they came. I sat next to a guy in the academy who um, he just a brilliant, brilliant deputy. Even back in in 1991, he had a stack of papers about cell phone technology, and he realized back then this is the future of tracking fugitives and so he worked with blair and, and those guys and um I, I don't like to name their names because he's still kind of half in the business but uh he's just a brilliant guy and he helps me quite a bit with the clancy's as well so i really enjoyed those sorts of things and the, the cases were many but when i got to north idaho we had a case now again you guys mentioned weaver and and uh, uh ruby ridge and all that so that's the that's the zeitgeist up there the what the feeling the kind of the anti-fed and the the animosity and stuff like that but uh so we went into that and then we had a guy that was wanted on a first off he was just wanted on a, a federal parole warrant so back back then we had a lot more parole warrants and then of course parole got abolished um but we still had a few people wanted on parole now it's all supervised release and we like parole warrants because there was no court. You just arrested the guy and took him to prison. There, when you violated parole, you just went back to jail. There was no, you know, pass and go or anything. You just went to prison. Not even the county jail. And this, the, the nearest, because they were property of the Bureau of Prisons as far as what the courts saw. 
So we were looking for this guy. His name was Farron Loveless. And uh, we, as we started investigating more, we learned that he had he was a suspect in kidnapping a Jewish couple across the state line into Spokane. He held them hostage in their own home for three days, two days maybe, um, but I think a couple of nights. And um, he had like fed their dogs and snuck up to their house and got in and held them hostage. And he he had been in prison, then he jumped parole and then come over here. And he had a hit list of a bunch of feds he wanted to kill and, and not just feds, but uh, um, so we're learning all this little stuff on him that kind of blossomed out of this parole warrant. And we worked it for a number of months, but we started to learn that he was just really a bad guy. But as we, we got an informant involved and some other people, we learned that he was hiding up on a mountain. He had married a woman. He was in his late thirties and he had married an older woman in her sixties. Um, that had a son and a grandson and she had a lot of, she had social security and, and stored food and kind of a back before prepping was a thing. She was a prepper. And so he had basically gotten all her food and he had his, cause he was really living a, a life on the run, completely disconnected. He had no phone, no, no nothing. So they had moved, he had moved this teenage boy and this 60 year old woman up into the mountains of North Idaho and they built their encampment up there and they had booby traps. They had fish hooks hanging from monofilament. He had, um, he had, um, you might recognize this if you've read the, the book there. Um, he had split pieces of wood with shotgun shells up through the middle of them and buried all around for like homemade uh, landmines and there were various booby traps around. And um, but it, now imagine in that situation when I tell I write a note to headquarters that says, "Hey, we got this guy and a woman and a teenage boy up on a mountain north Idaho. We'd like to go get him." They said, not in a million years are you going to go up and have a gunfight on a mountain in North Idaho with a teenage boy and a woman and a, and, and a fugitive. And so we had to come up with a lot of different plans. And we and it ended up that my, uh, my partner, who'd been working on it with me, this was back after the first World Trade Center bombings. And he was part of our special operations group. So we were protecting the judges back in New York. So he had to rotate out every few weeks and go back and help with the protective details. and. So he was out of town. So it was me and the and the FBI where they had helped work on the case because we all had to work together. And there was an FBI agent named Tom Norris who's a, a Medal of Honor with winner, or Medal of Honor recipient, I should say. Um, Tommy Norris, if you, he's the only FBI agent I ever met with a glass eye. Um, he's the he's the guy that saved Bat Twenty One. So I mean just a phenomenal dude and such a, he mentored my oldest son. He's just a very unassuming, um, FBI let him get away with what he wanted to. Cause he was a, you know, medal of honor recipient and just, and really just a class act. Um, so he was helping on it. So we, we came up with a plan to lure Farron off the mountain. And originally he had a bicycle and we knew he would come down off this mountain. There was quite a hike up there, take his bicycle and maybe come into town once in a while for supplies and so i came up with a plan to 
put a flashbang next to the bike and we'd hide and we'd lure him down to the bicycle and and then get him there. Headquarters said, nope, no flashbangs on a mountain. So we came up with another plan to, and Farron was super prejudiced, super white supremacist, super prejudiced. So we said, we sent our informant back up and this is all not, not sensitive now because it's all come out in court, but we, we sent the informant back up and he said, Hey, there's a, a Hispanic gun dealer in town that wants to buy some guns, but he's got two white girls that he's pimping out in Priest River, Idaho. And you might want to come down and buy some, uh, sell him some guns and take care of, you know, cleaning up the race a little bit. And, you know, Farron actually said, I'm going to come down and do that. I'm going to come down and get, I'm going to sell him some guns in air quotes and, and take care of this Hispanic guy that's pimping out white girls. And I mean, that's just the way his brain worked. And so he, um, we set up the time and we had boundary County deputy sheriffs and Bonner County deputy sheriffs and Tom Norris and I, and the plan was, when when Farron came riding by on his bicycle, there's a long, long bridge outside Priest River, Idaho that goes over Priest Lake. And we were going to pinch him in the middle of the bridge because we knew he was going to be armed. He was he had been like, he had a hit list and uh, he had a violent past. And so Tommy was behind him and I was coming up to meet him. And the idea was when he got on the bridge, we'd get him pinched between our two cars and arrest him so he didn't nobody else was in danger. We would close off the bridge. Well, as Tommy got in, Tom Norris got in behind him. He saw that he had a, a pistol out the, like in his hip pocket. He had a GP 100 pistol in his hip pocket and a little backpack on and a little, like a 1022 rifle sawed off sticking out the back of his backpack. And I mean, he's like the wicked witch of the West, you know, <laughs> riding on his bicycle towards town to meet this guy. And Tommy I don't know what happened, whether he touched the gun or what, but but Tom pulled up beside him and just bumped him off the road. So he went ahead and endowed and went into the to the ditch. And so I sped up there and, and this all happened very fast. So he went into the ditch before he got onto the to the bridge. And so I was right there and there was a boundary county deputy right behind me in a marked unit. And so Tommy bailed out of his car, I bailed out of his car because of the way Tommy was had to come around um, the boundary County deputy and I got there first and we jumped on top and the boundary County deputy was huge. And I thought I was picking up Farron, but then Farron kind of lifted out of my hands and then I lifted off the ground. And then we both went to the ground guns went everywhere. And we were able to, I, because of this very strong boundary County deputy, I was able to get Farron handcuffed almost immediately. But while we're in this scrum to handcuff him, another car pulls over and it's a nurse who thought there had just been a wreck. And so she, with the strength of 10 men shoulders her way through and says, I'm a nurse, I'm here to help. And we're like, no, get, you know, this is a felon, get out of the way. And she ended up kind of skidding on her knees. Um, we got fair and handcuffed. And as I'm standing him up, you know, he's got grass in his face. And as I'm standing him up, as you do, you know, when somebody's handcuffed, I'm helping to his feet. He looked at me and very clear eyed and very calm. He said, it is obvious to me that you're more racially pure than I am, or you never would have gotten me. And I said, yeah, you need to watch your head, get in the car. So I put him in the car. The Boundary County deputy 
uh, we put them in the Boundary County deputies cage car. Everybody's sort of, you know, tidying up, talking to the nurse and all that. So I sat down in the, you know, kicked the door open. I'm sitting down in the back of this cage car with Farron Loveless, who's a, just a creepy, he just exudes creepiness. And, um, he was really worried about this lady that he was married. What are you guys going to do to her? You know, there's booby traps up there. I don't want her to get hurt. Don't shoot her, please. And we're like, we're not aiming to shoot anybody. You're we're who you we were. You're who we were after. And he said, "Well, I'll make you a deal. If you are, if you will not prosecute her, you know." I said, well, "Let's let's get your rights read. Let's 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 get all this done." We got his rights read to him. There were witnesses, all that. And then uh, he said. Uh, if you don't prosecute her, I'll confess to, I'll tell you about a murder that I did. I mean, <laughs> okay. and this was in, I mean, dirt still <laughs> falling off of him. And, uh, and I said, okay, <laughs> I mean, I don't think we're going to prosecute her anyway, but yeah, sure. Let's tell us about the murder. So he told us about a, another white supremacist that he thought was going to rat them out. And so he told about, how he kidnapped this young kid. It turned out that one of the other guys from their outfit wanted this kid's wife. And so he said, Farron, whack him. So he, Farron kept him hostage for a night at a cabin, pistol whipped him, knocked the front tooth out, and um, then ended up taking him into the mountains and killing him. And Farron, we had to get permission to get him back out of jail and all that. And, of course, because Farron was kind of running the show of where he was taking us, we were very careful mm-hmm. about, you know, getting somebody out of custody to take him to point A that we knew he knew where we were going. And and he was guiding the shots down these remote logging roads. Sure enough, he took us right to the place where the body was buried. And this kid was, was poor guy, shot in, he's another white supremacist, but shot in the back of the head, as Farron said. Well, it's really difficult to convict somebody just on that. They wanted some other mm-hmm. corroboration besides I did it. Here's the body and all that. So they wanted some other corroboration. So Bonner County, the Bureau and I went out in front of the house, this cabin, and it was like an archeological dig and they, and it was pea gravel. And this had been one whole spring. I mean, winter and spring and now fall. And, we worked that and worked that and worked that. And one of the, I can't remember who it was. I think it was one of the Bonner County deputies found the tooth that he had knocked out in the pea gravel. Wow. Um, after a, a whole winter in North Idaho. And so Farron was actually able, he was, he was such a weirdo. He's, I think he's passed away now, but so I went to testify at the state hearing, you know, for, I mean, the, the trial for homicide and, he 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 represented himself. Huh, there's a mistake. And the judge and he said, "I want to testify. I want, I, yeah, I want to testify." And the judge said, "Well, you know, maybe you should talk to this attorney in the audience in the gallery that might give you some advice." And he said, "Nope, I'm going to testify." And so they released the jury. You know, they took the jury out, and the judge said, "You know, you can testify if you want to, but you're going to have to to." affirm or swear and he goes no i'm not going to do that i'll just testify and the judge said well then you're you got to affirm or swear you don't have to do it on a bible but you got to affirm you're going to tell the truth and farron said well let's just try it and so they they brought the jury back in it's a little little courtroom in sandpoint idaho and farron gets up in front of the jury and he raises his hand and he said 
I affirm that I will tell the truth as long as it benefits me. And and the, and the judge said, all right, let's see what you got to say. And then he pretty much confessed to everything, but had reasons. And he gave his whole manifesto that was four or five pages long. The, the defense rested. The prosecution <laughs> rested. I, I mean, they gave their little closing arguments, which was, Quick. you know, he did it yeah. mostly himself. So they sent the jury to the to the deliberation room, took fair into the back, sent the jury to the deliberation room, and the judge, I mean, take the jury. The judge had just stood up, and he looked, and the door had just shut on the jury deliberation room, deliberation room, and the judge said, you know what? It's lunchtime, Mr. Bailiff. Go back and see if you can get their order so that they can, you know, have a lunch, and then they can get on with their duties. And I'm just sitting in the back. So I saw the bailiff, and the, it's very small, and the door opened, and again, seconds have passed the door opens and he said hey judge wants me to check on your lunch um you need to go ahead and elect a four person and i hear this voice go we've done that already and then he says well let's go ahead and order your lunch do you want sandwiches or uh pizza and the four person goes which is quicker and he said well probably sandwiches and they go all right we're not going to be long and the door shut and they ate pizza and then convicted him of capital murder um I, it was literally long enough to cook a pizza that they uh, well we're not or we're not laughing murder is not funny they, but as we know too it's took. never a good sign for the defendant when the jury is when it takes longer to do the paperwork than it does to come up with the verdict oh. <laughs> yeah Exactly. And Farron really, he really is one of those. I have often have, as I'm sure you guys have, people ask me, how many, you must have uh, arrested a lot of evil people. You must have come across a lot of evil. And I say, yeah, yeah, you know what? There are some evil people out there. Uh, but by and large, most of the people, now the evil people were certainly evil. Most of the people were just people that made, did evil things. But Farron, he was an evil yeah. dude. He he just he was involved in a whole bunch of other sh- stuff with the with the Kehoe brothers, which people can oh, Google yeah. Chevy Kehoe and all that. They got he, was into. A, he was a running running mate of Chevy. Yeah, well, he was a running mate of the Kehoes in the murder that happened in Arkansas. And the more we dug into Fair and Loveless, the the darker and deeper. So so when I envision, so in writing, the bad guys need to be evil. They need to be very good foils for the, you know, very good foes for the, your protagonist. And so I, I envision a lot of how Farron made me feel when I'm around him. Um, and, a, you know, a handful of others when I'm writing fictional bad guys, but that, uh, it was, it felt, it felt very good to get Farron off the street. Cause he was a, a, a danger I'm for surprised. Sure. Why is it that the fact that he admits to the murder tells you where, tells you how he did it, takes you to where the body buried, out in the middle of nowhere, you got to know where it's at. How come you, you're telling me a prosecutor said that wasn't enough for a conviction? Yeah, I don't know. I guess they just wanted more. <laughs> well, just prosecutors more. always want more. It was, yeah. uh, yeah, that's the, I've got many friends that are attorneys as well, but it's, but I have my thoughts. <laughs> don't we all? Well, hey, let, let's talk about this too, because I want to make sure we get into talking about your books. So, w- w- did you start writing like the stuff like the, um, 
your one that you're doing here now, the Ar- Arliss Cutter, yeah, Arliss the Arliss Cutter, Cutter novels. Um, did mm-hmm. you start writing those while you were still on the Marshal Service? How did your transition go from law enforcement to punching out, you know, and doing this and getting into Tom Clancy? Yeah, so I wrote a couple of westerns um, because of my background with a horse, you know, as a horseshoer and all that. So I wrote because, and so I thought, you know, I grew up in Texas. I can, I can. Uh, most of my rejection letters were for short stories and things like that. But so I'd written, I, I wrote a couple of Westerns and I decided I'm going to go to a, uh, and I was still with the Marshals and I decided I was going to go to a um, writer's conference for Western writers that focused on Western literature. So I went to a conference in Helena, Montana. At those writers' conferences, a lot of times they'll have like um, like speed dating. You sit down with an editor or agent for three or four or five minutes, pitch your idea, and then move on to the next one. And they either give you a card and say, yeah, send me three chapters, or I don't really think this is for us, whatever. Well, anyway, one of the editors there um, asked me for three chapters. And so I sent her the chapters for this Western. And, of course, before I did, I sent it to all my friends, you know, FedEx that told my friends and said, Hey, could you look this over for me and really, you know, bleed all over with the writing? Cause I thought it was ready until somebody really wanted to see it. And then I got terrified. So we fixed those three chapters, sent it on. And then she, uh, it was actually the, my wife called me and it was a, looking back now, it's kind of chuckly, but it was a sad day because my wife called me and she said, um, my dad is, her dad was, quite old when she was born. And so he was 90 years old. And he, she said, my, my father's dying. We need to go to Calgary. And I said, Oh man, you know, I, I loved my father-in-law, just a world war two vet, a fantastic guy. And she said, and they called and they want to publish your book. And so I was like, gosh, my, I, this guy I love is passing away, but this is my break, you know? So I'm, I'm, torn emotionally so we go to calgary we end up we get to talk to my father-in-law and then he passes away he's a very just a wonderful guy i get on the phone with um ann at at, uh, the publisher the and she says i want i can't get your book in the publication list because it's going to be like 18 months two years before i can do that but i do have a book that i need finished it's by another author can you finish that up for me? And it'll be, you know, just be ghostwriting it. And he's a well-known author. We see his books in stores all the time. Uh, and I said, yeah, whatever you need me to do, absolutely, I'll do it. So she FedExed me a whole bunch of the books, said, read these over. Tell me if you think, you know, and then you, we've got to get on this. So I read them over. Absolutely, I can do this. I call back. And the receptionist at the publisher said, I said, I need to speak to Anne and uh, she said, well, Ann doesn't work here anymore. And I said, oh, well, I'm I'm taking over for this author. And I'm and the receptionist said, that's between you and Ann, and hung up the phone. And I was orphaned again. And so, you know, our my my leave is running out. I'm getting ready to go back to to uh come back to Alaska to start back up. And uh I get an email out of the blue from a literary agent named Robin Rue was writer's house literary agency. And she, she introduced herself. This is my name. She said, um, Anne is a friend of mine and she gave me your pages. I've read them over. I would like to represent you. And so I, 
I was like, yes, please, let's, I would love to do that. And so, um, I ended up getting my literary agent that way. She got me back in with the publisher. I ended up ghostwriting two of those books. They published two of my own Westerns under the name Mark Henry. And then one day she called me on the phone and said, you know, Mark, I really think you should branch out into thrillers. Um, and so I wrote, you know, because there's not as many people reading Westerns and with your background. So I got permission from the marshal service to write as long as I didn't contract myself. In other words, I had to write everything on spec. I couldn't get paid ahead of time because I couldn't be beholden to somebody by contract because of mainly because of availability pay. You have to be available 24 seven to go work. And so I, uh, I wrote a book, sent it off. She trotted it all around New York. Nobody wanted it. I thought she was going to drop me. She, but instead she said, we'll do it again. Write another one. So I spent another year, wrote another book. And it was about Alaskan Native kids and Prince of Wales Island and uh, a murder that the kids saw and some different things. And I sent it off. And again, it didn't seem like anybody wanted it. And then I got Robin, my agent, forwarded me an email with a, a rejection letter on it. But it was a page and a half long. And it said, it said um, really effusive stuff. We like your writing. We like your characters. These are very rich characters you know, all kinds of good stuff. And then it said, but this is just not marketable for us. You got, you can't figure out whether you want to write a romance or a mystery or whatever. And it gave me some really good, um, really good advice. But this particular editor who has no recollection, I'm sure of sending me this rejection letter really changed the trajectory of my career because the last couple of sentences of this page and a half letter says, and anyway, who cares about Alaska and who cares about a bunch of Alaska native kids? Write Jason Bourne, write James Bond, write over the top. And it pissed me off. I thought, what do you mean who cares about Alaska? This was pre all the reality shows. This was pre Sarah Palin making the front page. This was nobody really knew that much about Alaska in the early 2000s, late, you know, nineties. And um, so I went back to work and I wrote this, what I thought was going to be a one-off about, at that time, my son had uh, just graduated the Air Force Academy and was going to be an OSI agent. So I thought, nobody knows about the OSI. I'll make this super OSI agent that speaks several languages. I love Japan and speak Japanese. My son speaks Mandarin. So I put all these different qualities together and... um, made this character named Jericho Quinn and I ride motorcycles. I ride a BMW GS at that time. My friend was riding a GS. I thought that is a cool bike. So I put Jericho on this BMW GS adventure, gave him a bunch of languages, made him an amalgam of all these cool people I've known, including Tommy Norris. And, um, we sold hundreds of thousands of copies and the book that I thought was going to be a one-off, um, we've done eight and two novellas, I decided I'm going to dust off. We were doing well enough. We hit the New York Times. We were doing well enough that I asked my agent, I said, I want to do that other book about Alaskan natives and the kids and all that. And she said, yeah, I, get, I can get you a contract for that because the Jerichos were doing well enough. And so Kensington, I got a contract for the cutters, started writing the cutters, 
In the meantime, I was at a conference in um, New Orleans, I think, uh, called BoucherCon, which is a mystery and thriller. No, sorry, I was going to say, I just got to note, David Baldacci was just down there. He actually lives not too far from me. I've run into him a couple times. He's done book signings and stuff, and he just got back from BoucherCon. Yeah, no, yeah. yeah. BoucherCon, it goes on every year, and it's a, it's a really great conference. Obviously, for me, for networking, because I had known Mark Graney a little bit. We had met a couple of times. My wife and I had, had dinner with him, and uh, I love his Gray Man books. And, and then he was writing the Clancy's at the time. And he uh, – so we just kind of passed in the, in the hotel one evening, and he said, uh, hey, what are you uh, working on right now, working on another Jericho? And I said, well, I, I'm just turning in a Jericho, and I'm starting this new series as well, still going to do the Jerichos. And he goes, well, hey, before that Jericho comes out, why don't you send me a, a copy of the manuscript and I'll give you a cover blurb. Well, any author knows that that's the coin of the realm, man, especially from somebody like Mark Graney. And I hate asking for cover quotes. I just, because I know how busy I am and I've got, you know, six or seven right now that I'm supposed to get to that. I haven't gotten to yet. And I want to, I, I want to help other writers, but it's just a matter of time. Right. So for somebody like Mark to offer, I was Wow, this is cool. So absolutely. So I sent him an e-copy of one of the, you know, the, the advanced read copies and sent him that. And unbeknownst to me, he was stepping away from the Clancy gig. He had done seven and uh, he gave that to Tom Colgan at Penguin Random House slash Putnam, who does the Tom Clancy's. And um, I don't know whether I was the second choice or third choice or fifth choice, but whoever else was really good said no. And somehow they got down to me and uh, they liked the Jericho books. And so I was down in Florida, down on the uh, import uh, Charlotte area, staying at my barber. My barber has a, a house down there. She goes to in the winter and she let me stay down there with my wife. And so we were researching the, the Arliss Cutter book, that the first Arliss Cutter book called Open Carry, and I was on the beach at, at Manasota Key there looking at shark teeth, and my phone rang, and it was Robin Rue, and she said, Mark, Mark Graney's stepping away from the Clancy's, and he has suggested your name. They would like you to write the next Jack Ryan. And I, my wife, I don't know what she thought was going on, but she knew it was something big, so she took a picture of me. So somewhere deep in my social media, I'm standing in these goofy board shorts and with a straw hat on, and I've, I'm kind of clutching myself, listening to my phone with this stricken look on my face. And I told Robin, I said, well, you know, I've got another Jericho, and I've got this this cutter coming out. I, I don't know if I have it. And she stopped me, and, she go, and she's got this marvelous accent. And she said, Mark, it's Clancy. Don't around. <laughs> and I said, you're right. You're right. Yes, I will do it. I will absolutely do it. Um, and and they wouldn't let me talk about it for months and months and months. In fact, I broke the news. What My wife and I go to um, an island in the South Pacific for a couple of months every year and do some writing there. And we have friends. It sounds snooty when I say that. But we have friends there that let us stay at a reduced rate in their little bungalow. But it's a beautiful, beautiful place called Rarotonga. So I was on the beach in Rarotonga and I took a picture of me in a hammock with um, the Tom Clancy companion. You know, I'm reading that, but um, 
So it, it just sort of, I was very fortunate and had good friends and had, was at the right place at the right time with the, you know, a product that they, that the Clancy estate and Tom Colgan and Mark Graney liked and um, was able to sort of segue in and, and do all those and been, been very fortunate. Nice. With that. That's amazing too, because if I remember right, Ryan's literary agent is John Talbot. John Talbot at one time represented Tom Clancy, if I remember that right. Was one of the first people to represent him. Yeah, I don't know. I yeah. Don't. Anyway, I'm just saying that's. Yeah, Ryan was telling me about that. Yeah, it's. But the literary agent, it's very important. Hey, so let's talk about this too, because we got the advanced reader copy. But it is uh, Arliss Cutter Breakneck. He's a force of nature, but so is the Alaskan wilderness. So this, what I found interesting is because, like I said, my history. My my sister was born there. My dad was on the honor guard when Alaska became a state. And just, I, I've never had a chance to visit it. One of the few states I want to go to that I've never been, but it's just that thought of man, which Arliss Cutter is, you know, man against nature. I mean, it's just like there is, there are very few other epic battles that you can have. Not There could be bad guys, right? But it's the Alaskan wilderness doesn't give a shit who you are. It treats everybody the same, you know, and I like what you were just saying too. So tell us about this, but tell us about the research you were just doing because you just got in your time late last night. You're four hours behind us from doing research for your net, next book. So you, like you said, you're out in a village. So tell us about, tell us about this, tell us about breakneck and then let's talk about what you're working on. Yeah. So, so breakneck is the fifth in the Arliss Cutter series. And what I try to do, uh, Arliss Cutter is a, a deputy, a supervisory deputy marshal running the Alaska fugitive task force, which is a multi-agency. It's a real task force, a multi-agency task force made up of usually, and it, it, fluctuates, but we've had DEA helping us out. We've had even a part-time FBI agent. We have ATF agents. We have um, APD, uh, Anchorage Police Department, Alaska State Troopers, and some are on part-time, some are on full-time, but we generally have a full-time trooper, full-time uh, Anchorage Police, and then the feds kind of, as they have enough personnel, they'll they'll send people people over. And sometimes state uh, state uh, parole will come over because they have arrest authority and um, so work together to get the these bad guys off the street. And it makes for a really good milieu to plunk my characters in, to because Alaska is a place that, as you mentioned, it, it's pretty dangerous. We have a bumper stickers up here that say "Step out of the RV and into the food chain," <laughs> and um, it's just a wild place. And in fact, I you mentioned I just got back from a. A place that used to be called Barrow, Alaska. In fact, the airport is still Barrow, the Wiley Post, uh, Will Rogers Wiley Post. That's where they crashed in their airplane. And but the uh, it's the, they've gone back to the native name, which is Utkiagvik. So when I say I was in Utkiagvik, that's because that's what they call it now. But um, it's when we when you get to the hotel, there's a big sign on the door saying. Um, be bear aware there's polar bears out here, you know, watch for polar bears. And they, you know, sometimes come into town and I went to rent my little beat up Ford escape rental car and uh, it's covered with mud in the, in the, when it's not snowy there, it's muddy. It's either really dusty or really muddy. It's like an old frontier town. Um, I, I just like the feel of being out there. But, uh, we, when I rented the car, the guy showing the rental car said, Hey, out at, out at the edge of town, they just saw a big fat polar bear and he showed me a video and this polar bear was the size of a 
a Volkswagen, I mean, or probably a Mini Cooper. It's a big polar bear just rolling along and pretty fat on seals and probably some caribou. And uh, so my, the guy that I was with who works for this, with the school districts, we've, he helped me a lot with research and he's lived up there. And so we were driving around on the edge of town and right at the edge of town, this polar bear has got a caribou down and it's just covered in mud and laying out on the tundra, just munching down the, and we were literally in the middle of, there was no one else around. We were two miles out of town. It would have been a long, and I should say two miles out of town. It was in between town and the high school football field. So two mile, you know, a mile and a half either direction. It would have been a very long walk for that <laughs> polar bear within a hundred. Because polar bears, they're not like brown bears or or black we call a grizzly a brown bear in alaska but they're not like grizzlies or black bears in that you could play bit dead or or fight it off or whatever polar bears for one thing there's no trees to climb but uh for the other thing polar bears consider humans food so they they don't they don't run away from you unless they think they're being hunted but they actually actively stalk you as food so uh Polar bears are are pretty dangerous. So we so that's just an example of the of the wilderness. But beyond that, I remember my editor early on in the Cutter books. He said, "How come you've always you know you, you can't do the storm thing anymore? There can't be a storm isolating everybody. Why why you got another storm?" I said, "Well, we just call that Tuesday <laughs> here in Alaska because that's just the way it is. It's not uncommon at all. In fact, last night even we were we'd been there three nights." And we're watching the the weather, just hoping because the fog would roll in. If the fog's there, the airplanes circle around just long enough to know they got enough fuel to get back to anchors, then they leave. And so I've been stranded in Barrow, Utkiagvik many times. I've been stranded out on the coast, the western Alaska coast, by the Bering Sea, by fog and snow and rain, and down in southeast Alaska and in Kodiak. There's there's just so many ways that the moose, right after I first moved here, um, I'd been, this is in 98. And so I was working the task force when I first moved here and, uh, with APD. And we had a guy that was in a house, was, had barricaded and he, we tried to make the arrest. He barricaded. So we had APD with their, uh, MP5s and there was a couple of deputies and we had the house surrounded and the houses were pretty close together, but there were, there are easements through the houses for, wild animals and for kids to go to school <laughs> and sort of walk to the bus stops. Jeez. And so I'm like pressed up against the window where the bad guy is behind me inside and we can hear the negotiators talking. So we've got the four points of the house watching the house. So I'm this way near a bollard that I, I, I think I was by a chimney. So I wasn't worried about getting hit in the back. And I hear one of the APD guy, Anchorage police guys kind of kitty corn from me by the fence. And he goes, and he's, he's, kind of stand up with his mp5 and i hear him go like that kind of hey heads up everybody and we all looked over and his mama moose that had to be seven feet tall at the withers come and her ears are pinned back her hackles are up and she's got and i and this is i moved up in april so this would have been around may so all the babies are just hitting the ground so she's got these two brand new 
chocolate brown baby moose and she is on guard and she's marching right through all the police officers outside just daring us to, and i could have reached out and scratched her oh. ribs i mean she was that close she just came by so i'm like snuck up again you know squashed up against the house it's just by the grace of god i didn't get stomped to pudding that day so moose avalanche bears volcanoes uh Falling, we've had deputies fall through the ice, you know, just up to their knees. But if you're chasing somebody and you fall through the ice up to your knees and it's 17 below, you're done. You're you go back to the car and or or if you keep chasing, you lose your toes, right? So there's just so many, and I absolutely love it. There's just you you know that you know I've got. I mean, it's a big thing with, and I'm a gun guy. I'm I I'm a Second Amendment guy, but up here. Yeah, you need yeah. to have a gun on. You need to you need to have a gun on. It, when you go out to the, if I go hiking with my grandkids, I got a forty four Magnum Smith and Wesson here, not not somewhere in my pack or not stuck down underneath my belt or even my shirt. It is here, and it, there's just a. I like not just to go out to take the garbage out. We may have a black, we haven't ever had any problems. We have black bears in our yard all the time. Um, and then just up the road, like within less than a mile. Uh, in fact, I just got a Facebook post last week about four miles from my house. This lady posted that, Hey, if anybody hears shots, a grizzly bear just chased a black bear up a tree and killed it and buried it, you know, in my front yard. So, be careful when you're walking around out here. So now add that to hunting fugitives. And, you know, I remember times when we would go out and even for training, for tracking training, because we do a lot of man tracking stuff up here, uh, or I talk like I'm still doing it. We did a lot of man tracking stuff up here and we would have the rabbit, you know, the FBI agent or, or um, national guard or whoever, you know, we'd be training other agencies They'd be off at the rabbit run ahead, and then the other agency people that were trained would go ahead of them, and we'd be in contact by radio, and you just we'd be their tracks. We'd see the rabbit's tracks, you know, the 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 quarry, the the fugitive, see the tracks, and on top of those tracks, we'd see a, like a eleven inch, twelve inch, fourteen inch oh, bear geez. track that's filling with water as we're standing there. Uh, and so, you know, we're like calling like, Hey, you got, you got company coming up behind you. And, and when you're out there like that, uh, an MP, you know, a, a nine millimeter or, a, a an M four with a 20 round mag of two, two, three ammo looks awfully puny when you're looking at a, a brown bear. I, I remember being up on a, a tracking mission where I was the primary tracker up in, really just a little north of where I live, there was a, a, a doll sheep hunter that had gone missing. And we got called in to track f- for search and rescue as well as fugitives. And this doll sheep hunter had gone missing. And the last he had been seen, the troopers had landed on him in their helicopter. And he was way up in the mountains. They'll sometimes, they'll be talking to a hunter. You might've seen something like this on Alaska State Troopers, that, but they'll be be talking to one hunter and that hunter will say, well, I, I heard a shot over there and, you know, they check his or her paperwork. And so the helicopter flew over, they landed on this hunter. He had the doll sheep down. He had all his paperwork, right. And he'd already been up in the mountains like four, four or five days. And so this, the sheep is down. He was out of water at this spot 
because his spike camp is further up the mountain. So the troopers gave him some water and said, are you doing okay? He said, yeah, I'm doing fine. I just appreciate the water. Since his license is okay, they flew away. And then he didn't show up again at home for four days. And he should have been home like the, late the next night or possibly the next. And so a better part of a week in, there's a place called the Peters Creek Drainage. A better part of a week in, they asked us to come in and we we had what they call a, a point last seen or a last known point. Different trackers call it a certain thing. We called it a last known point. Or, I mean, a point last seen. So they took me out by helicopter, put me in that place where we knew that he had been seen. And if you can imagine, you guys ever plowed with a Troy-built tiller? You know, when you go over dirt with a tiller or something like that? So this, this sheep gut pile had been there and all the blood and all that. The bears had come in after he had left, and it just looked like it had been tilled. The whole side of the mountain, there was no hair. There was no, I mean, you could tell, I guess I saw like a tuft of white hair, but there was no bone. And the, and you bone out, you don't want to carry that off a mountain. So there should have been bones and stuff there. I could tell this was a, a kill site, but the, the bears had just eaten the dirt and pooped the dirt. I mean, they had just done everything. But I was able to, what they asked me to do was backtrack from there and find his spike camp. So I was able to go through the mountains and, and found his uh, spike camp. And um, then and then there was snow in the high country. So we were able to, most of the time, trackers don't find the lost person. We give azimuths to the people that are on the ground and air assets looking. So I was able to say, you know, it looks like he went this way. There's some age snow. And so I, anyway, so I'm, I'm giving out that information, but I'm on this point of land. It's basically the where the the peak of the mountain comes off, and and it was not a hard climb. I mean, it was a decent climb, but I got halfway up there by helicopter, right? But it's just beautiful. And at that point, I was carrying because I was doing so much hiking, carrying what we in the Marshal Service called a call a Witsec shotgun. It's that little short eight seventy. They sell them now called a Tac uh, Tac fourteen. I think it's got a fourteen inch barrel. This one has a like a 11 and a half or 12 inch barrel, but a, and a bird's eye, a bird's head grip and really short shotgun. And it fit in a scabbard right by my pack. So I could carry that for bear protection. And then I also had my, my, um, just regular pistol. Um, uh, at that point, I think we they were making us carry Glocks. Um, so I was carrying my Glock 40. So I, I wanted to have my, uh, my, uh, 12 gauge with Brennicky slugs in it. So I had that little 12 gauge and I'm sitting on this and I, and I had the satellite phone and I'm straddling. So one leg is in one Valley. One leg is in the other Valley. It's just this beautiful vista with glaciers. And I called my chief and I'm talking to her. Here's what's happening. I think they're going to find him down this wash. And I look across and there was beaters. There was people on four wheelers and horses down in the Valley. And this, so just on the mountain, so not on my side, but on the mountain across from me. So maybe 100, 150 meters away, um, this brown bear sow comes rolling out of the – and I know she was a sow because there was a cub that kind of splintered off and went another way. She comes roaring out of the pucker brush, all this this alder and stuff like that on the bottom, and just just fat rolling off of her. And, you know, it's, it's fall time, so she's – bulking up for the winter and she's running up a mountain that's like your kitchen wall almost and it's not slowing her down at all and i remember thinking 
this gun is not big enough. I need something I can put to my shoulder so I can hold it steady when this when this bear comes after me. Or and I, at that time I started carrying a three seventy five h and h magnum i was i was done with shotguns at that i'm gonna time. say in the words of a famous captain on a boat <laughs> we're gonna need a bigger boat like you're gonna need a bigger gun it's just not gonna mm-hmm. be enough for this oh yeah yeah exactly they, yeah they always say you don't need a really a big gun you just need a 22 so you can shoot your buddy in the <laughs> knee and then run off and leave him for <laughs> that, the bear that was the old joke we used to tell out camping you know that insert your favorite uh, state but guy from kansas guy from maine out camping bear attacks a campsite Guy from Kansas running around screaming, oh, my God, we got to go. Guy from Maine putting on his shoes. Guy goes, Kansas goes, what are you doing? You can't outrun a bear. Uh, don't have to outrun the bear. Just have to outrun you. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's that's told quite often around the campfire. So I try to put and, – and we have so many isolated places. So in, in this particular – in Breakneck, for instance, there's a – well, there's some polar bear stuff up in Utkiagvik. Part of the action takes place. The, the front of the book is the – the uh, barrow arches or the the whalebone arches that overlook the Arctic Ocean. And if anybody looks on my social media, just Mark Cameron, you'll see me day before yesterday standing with a copy of that book in front of those arches. And it's about 34 degrees and the wind's blowing sideways. Um, so I try to put in the native culture that's in that area because, you, I mean, that's the predominantly who it is. It's in your pack. Uh, People up there um, on Western Alaska, it's Yupik people. Interior, it's Athabaskan. But so I try to put in that stuff in this particular book in Breakneck. There's the action happens up in Utkiagvik, out by the the bright blue football field. There's so much culture and so much different out there um, with some whales. And in fact, I've got some whale in my my uh, fridge right now that we got up in Utkiagvik. Some uh, muktuk and also some. Um, some they call it fermented whale, but I think it's just um, controlled putrefaction. But it's it's safe to eat. It, it's uh, but it's there. It's a way so when I write it, um, I can uh, I can explain. You know, we eat cheese, so you know, blue cheese. But uh, it's not something that I would serve to guests or anything. But it's it's nice to know when I write what it smells like and tastes like that I can I can feel the the fizziness on my tongue and explain that to people. You can feel the bile Um, coming up from your your system when you're throwing up. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. The the muktuk, I I enjoy, the other was acquired taste. Um, And I don't, you know, I don't like to make fun of other people's food. It's what they had to do to survive. But the muktuk is actually good. I I like, it's the skin and the the, uh, blubber. And you can slice that really thin and and eat it with soy sauce and whatnot. It's it's sushi. The the skin is actually very thick and it it kind of it's like a rubber tire. It gets in your teeth. But um, so so there's that. There's the interior of Alaska and a train that goes into remote parts of the country. That my wife and I have taken the trains and I try to keep up with with my. I'm not a big. Uh, buy my book, buy my book on social media. What I do try to do is give my readers who are already there some added value by saying, hey, take a look at the research I did for Breakneck or in this the new book that's coming up. It's called Bad River. Um, take a look at the research I'm doing for Bad River so you can kind of look for those sorts of things in the book. So that's fun. I get to travel around Alaska and meet old friends that I knew from um, when I was with the Marshal Service and went to all these places. Yeah, I just before. I just looked up Barrow, Alaska on the on Google Maps here. 
that's like the farthest point north of, in Alaska, isn't it? It is. It is the farthest point in the United States north. It's uh, and that's where I was standing. That Point Barrow um, is right out the right out the road from the city of Barrow or Utqiagvik. Um, you drive out and the points right out there. It's a, uh, it's a fascinating place. Absolutely fascinating. We're going to reach out and see if we can find some psycho, some type of psychologist or something to see if we can get you some help, Mark. <laughs> 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 the first step in recovery is asking for help. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, hey, good man, luck. I got to tell you, this is what's been so fun about this. Again, this is why you you write such great books is to write a great book, you got to be a great storyteller. And one of the advantages of being in law enforcement, right, is people, you can't make this shit up. I mean, there's we do a whole thing on Patreon, uh, but it's called You Can't Make This Shit Up. And some of the stories, some of the stuff, if you told it, it's kind of like. I, the, the no way that happened. It's like, yeah, that happened. It's like, you know, even the embarrassing stuff. It's so much fun. So, um, no more Tom Clancy. You're going to focus on uh, Arliss. Um, why? Last question here, because we want to uh, be respectful of your time. Um, but you, you, the the Jericho and the Arliss. Are you going to keep those both going, or does one have to stop so you can focus on the other? I mean, because it, it's a lot of cognitive load, like you said. I mean, to to write a book and do the research, it's not like you can kind of do half of something today, half of one on the other one tomorrow. I mean, it's almost like when you get into something. At least for me, I got to, it's like. I got to stay in, immersed in it so that I don't lose track of where I'm at. How, how does that work for you? No, I write I, I write one thing at a time generally, but but I can still go back and forth. And I'll write. I get people asking me about when the next Jericho is coming out all the time. I, I get several emails a day. I got one just before I logged on with you guys. I just got another one asking if I would quit writing the Jerichos, and I have not. I have one plotted out. It's just that the publisher – and I have decided that it's, and you know, it's really up to them what what books they want me to write and publish, because uh, I have to make my living at this. And um, I enjoy writing the Jerichos. I have a lot of, I mean, yeah, I enjoy writing the Jerichos. I enjoy writing the Cutters. Eventually, hopefully, before too long, there'll be another Jericho. But I'll go back. I, I have contracts for another Jericho and a couple more. Uh, we just signed for for two more. Uh, Arliss Cutters. So, but I'll write one for six, seven months, and then go back and write another one. But you know, back and forth. But these are I'm I'm one of those guys that you know you you're right. I do need some sort of psychological help because my wife and I were joking. You know, what if we what if we won the lottery? She said, "What would you do?" And I said, well, "I guess I would just keep writing until all the money was gone." <laughs> I don't. Uh, I I I might write one book a year instead of two, but I just enjoy writing. It's my catharsis. It's, I mean, obviously I do because I wrote for 25 years, almost every night before, you know, and on, you know, dead, dead heading back on prisoner trips. And I had a college professor get me aside one time because he, he saw that I was wasting my time flirting with the girls and procrastinating and all that. And he pulled me aside and he said, you know, Mark, you are, going to amount to something if you can stop acting this way and he said you will never you will never amount to your full potential unless you learn to utilize those 15 minute segments of time that everybody else wastes and i really took him to heart so when i would be like yesterday we were at the airport and barrow 
Utqiagvik Airport, Barrow Airport is is this tiny little airport with like 14 seats. And when somebody arrives and people are leaving, you all kind of run into one another. And so we got there a little bit early and I spent two hours working on Bad River in the, in the Barrow Airport because I had the time and where, you know, friends of mine that like video games or online poker or whatever, that's what they do and good on them. That's their deal. I just, it, I, it, it's enjoyable to me to, to get into the, get in that, like you were saying that kind of, I get in kind of a fugue state and my wife has to sometimes <laughs> throw something at me to get me to, you know, come well, out. It's, well, you know, it kind of goes back to the old saying too, that if you find a job you like, you'll never work a day in your life. Oh, I, and you know, you're absolutely right. And I think I could probably end on this if you guys are ready to go, but I, uh, I get asked a lot, especially at writing gigs. Um, cause I'm arguably, fairly successful at this we're you know we've hit bestseller lists and we're selling well i'm able to travel and all of that and my uh, I, I get asked all the time man you what is it like to have your dream job and i i every time or the best job in the world and i say you know what this is the second best job in the world there's not a day that goes by that I don't miss the people of the marshal service and the mission. I don't miss the politics, but I miss the people and the mission. And I already had the best career that I could have ever hoped for. I loved going to work, loved my job. And now I am so supremely blessed to get this whole nother career. That's uh, the readers that I get to meet the people I get to go back and research for the Clancy's or the cutters or the Jericho's. It's uh, uh, I uh, I don't want to get all weepy, but I've got a lot of gratitude for because I get to keep my toe in the water with the SWAT team here. One of the guys that's uh, one of the snipers on the SWAT team here called me the other day and said, "Hey, I got some stories for you. Let's go walking at the track." Who gets to do that? I mean, my son's not there. Maybe he's just calling me and saying, "I want you to feel relevant, <laughs> old man. Let's come, you know, let's walk around with me." But. Uh, who gets to keep their toe in the water with law enforcement when they're 61 years old and get to hear the war stories and get to go hang out with the SWAT guys or fly around in a V-22 with the Marine Corps or because I write silly books. I yeah, just got to watch those Ospreys, guy. man. I really am. <laughs> and talk <laughs> to you guys. Hey, I, I, I got to talk you, to man, you baby. guys. Hey, I'm too old to die, to die tragically young. I I can fly an osprey whenever. There I you want. go. I got to tell you the uh, I've I've started supporting the. I live in Orlando, Florida, and I've started supporting the Orlando Police and their Police Foundation. And through that, uh, you know, they have the annual SWAT competition, the SWAT Roundup. So I've already gotten an invitation this November to come out to the SWAT Roundup, which is right here in Orlando, with teams all over the United States and all and several teams from other countries coming for competition. Man, I just I can't wait. I'm excited. Isn't that wonderful to see that? It gives you gives you hope yeah. for the future. I I wanted to have in the last Clancy and two Clancy's ago because the second to the last one was set in 1985, so it's kind of a throwback. But Chain of Command and Command and Control, which is my last one, they both feature a young Abilene PD SWAT officer, and I wanted it to be. APD because all my buddies here, my son's buddies with Anchorage PD, so I could write APD and I could sort of swipe some of their names to name characters and all that. So I flew out to, to uh, 
Fort Worth and drove to Abilene and worked with, you know, just cold called them on, on email. And they said, yeah, come on out. Was out there with Abilene PD and Abilene PD SWAT. Stellar. And it just does my heart good to see these young men and women that are, that are the future and, you know, the present and the future. And we, I think guys our age, we have a tendency to go, ah, these kids today, but man, I'm pretty proud of these people that I, I get to meet. Absolutely. We had uh, two Orlando officers shot here about six weeks ago and fortunately both recovering and and the jerk that pulled the trigger is, is uh, in the ground now where he belongs. But I had the honor, I, and I'm still shocked that this even happened, that uh, there's a lieutenant down there I'm, I'm good buddies with, John Cute. And John said, hey, would you come in and talk to the SWAT and the tactical squads? You know, just tell them, tell them your little story. We're going to hold a little luncheon here. We'll cater in, you know, Panera or whatever. And, uh, you know, get up in 45, 60 minutes, just tell them your story. And and here's, I've been retired now for 10 years. I was a cop for 38 years. But to have the honor to stand in front of these young studs, these young, these young men and women who are out there so proud to be wearing the badge, so proud to be wearing police on their clothing, you know, it, it's just a true honor. Just And, you know, they're probably looking at me like I'm an idiot because I'm fangirling over these guys. And, and you know, they're like, well, we want to hear your story. I'm like, dude, I want to hear what what'd you do last night. <laughs> what happened? Just tell me. <laughs> well, I got a really yeah. important question for you, though. Will we see Jericho and Arliss ever team up in the future? You know, I don't know. It's such a different world. The Jericho books are, I always like to say they're possible, but not plausible. Think of the Jerichos as a, as Jason Bourne. And I mean, he is, everything he does can be done um, on his motorcycles or, you know, whatever, but it's a, it's almost a different universe, but it's funny you mentioned that because my editor has sort of teased that idea, but um, I don't know. We'll see. It would be a, there is a, there is a deputy marshal in the Jericho books named August Bowen. That is kind of a blueprint of Arliss Cutter. But then when I spun him off, it grew quite a bit from my August Bowen into, to Arliss Cutter. So if you, if you read maybe like the fifth Jericho on, there's a character in there that might be pretty reminiscent of Arliss Cutter. His name's, but his name's Gus All Bowen. Right. Well, very cool. And folks, you can find him too, markcameronbooks.com. That's correct, right? Markcameronbooks.com. And it's Mark, M-A-R-C, yep. not M-A-R-K. M-A-R-C. M-A-R-C, yep. <laughs> yep, Mark, on the website or on social media I'm or anything like that. Somebody posted a picture. They went to Starbucks and they spelled his name. I said, my name's Mark with a C. So that's what they wrote on there. They wrote M-A-R-K with a C. <laughs> that's his name. Oh. Or sometimes they'll do it. Kark. Kark. They'll write Kark. Like Kark. Mark with a C. Kark. <laughs> you know, I, I've got to say, I really... I. Let me just say one thing. You guys, it's been a pleasure to talk to you because I kind of fangirl on my other, you know, just just my fellow officers. I I got to tell you, as a father of law enforcement, my son was in a officer-involved shooting. After the shooting, who did I hear from? Who did he hear from? All my buddies. All my people that I knew that want, that closed ranks around him, and it it very literally brought tears to my eyes. And this was several years ago, but it, that I didn't just talk about or pay lip service to, or none of us paid lip service to that we're a, a family, because 
guys like you, people that I've even met just tangentially, saw on the news, called, hey, how's it going? What's going on? And not to ask questions, but let me help you out. Let me let me give him, like you, Steve, talking about um, your experiences and how that, that helps some of these young guys. It, it was it's pretty moving. So being able to chat with you, I don't even, I mean, obviously my publishers will get mad if I say this, but I don't care about my books. I love my books. I love writing. I hope people buy my books, but talking to you about law enforcement and sharing stories, this made my day. And this so is how we keep our on. foot in the door too. It's, yeah. it's, uh, once you're, you know, we said this in our Patreon episode a little earlier today that we're like the mafia. Once you're in the family, there's only one way out. There's only one way out. This thing of ours. And I got to tell you, when we first started, I thought you were going to be a little That's shy, right. you know, pull it out. And then it's like, once we start talking, no, let me tell you. And this is the great part is when you can just, we've had some guests, they're good. They got good stories, but you got to, okay, you know, come on, come on, you know, throw a little yep. more out there, you know, but with you, it's like, this was so much fun to sit back and just listen to the stories, yep. you know, being told. So, Hey, this is, first of all, this is us saluting you. Uh, number one, thank you for Weatherford. Thank you for being a U.S. Marshal. Uh, you know, we had some friends in common. Always good to talk with people like that. But what I love is thank you for writing what you're doing because you portray law enforcement is a, in a positive light. And that's something that's needed today. People don't realize how tough this job is. It's tougher than when probably you and I and everybody else were on the job. It is much tougher today. And thank you for, for doing that. And look, I got to tell you, man, um, you've inspired me. Like I said, I'm just finished. I just I'm finished. I, I'm just doing the final pass, polishing grammar and stuff, and I'm turning it over and I'm starting. You've got me psyched up now. I'm like, I'm getting, I'm getting on this, man. There, I've got more time behind me than I have ahead of me, so I got to awesome. get going. So thank you for doing that for me too. Good, well, it's, good. Been a, it's been a true honor to have you on here. Thanks for sharing your stories. We will promote your books out till the day we die. Uh, wishing you continued success and that of your son also for going into law enforcement. So yeah. God bless you both. All right, you bet. All right, thank you. You guys don't go anywhere. Everybody hang on for just a second. All of you guys, stay tuned for the debrief. Just the story about how they were out there trying to arrest a guy and the moose just comes wandering through there, you know, just the... Just, just things that are uniquely Alaskan you have to appreciate. Well, and and uh, Mark just said he backed up against the wall next to the chimney, hoping he wouldn't be noticed. I think I've been running out of there screaming like a little girl. There's a big moose going to give me. Somebody help me. And then bears. And then you hop out and there's bears all over the place. So he's in a perfect place to be writing his books. Um, oh, my and- gosh. It was great, too. The other thing I loved about it, too, you heard him say at the end of it, he said he he really enjoyed it, which we did, too. It's like sitting around, having a beer, or in your case, a ginger ale, you snitch. Um, you have to go back and read what it means. Spill um, coffee. But, <laughs> spill coffee. But you have to understand, it's it's a great compliment from somebody like him who is, I mean, he's gotten to the point now to where they take a couple months, they go to a very fantastic little tropical island, you mm-hmm. know, way out in the South Pacific, so he can write books. I mean, what what a great way to, you know, continue on the career and just, but we had the stories though, but the one that impacted him talking about the guy, uh, the killing that he did and the work they did to go out and find a single tooth mm-hmm. in an area of, just to find a single tooth. If you want to know folks what the, the definition of dedication is, it's something like that. You know, one thing that cops like to do, and, and I think the reason that, that so many people like Game of Crimes is cops like to drink beer and tell war stories. 
And that's what we do here on Game of Crimes. We have the professionals who, the heroes who actually live these events, come on and tell you their story. It's not us reading something and then we tell you what their story is. We bring them on so you hear it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Here, Or the moose's uh, mouth in this case. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, Mark even, he went a step further. And, and we actually went longer than we anticipated on his interview because he has so many stories and we were just scratching the surface. But since then, he's introduced us to two more people we're going to have on the show. Uh, one, a former CIA case officer and the other retired DEA agent. And let me just say, the DEA agent, his last name is Rambo. Now, you cannot write a better <laughs> script for a podcast or a movie, Rambo. Yep. And we've already got these guys lined up for interviews, so you'll be hearing from them in the future. But, you know, there, Mark didn't have to go out of the way to do that for us. And and so, Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show, and, and thank you for the introductions. And, I mean, we just wish you continued success. Uh, you'll hear, I mean, you heard Mark talk about his son went into law enforcement. Now he's over at the State Department, so we wish him uh, all safety in, in that position as he travels around the world. But God bless you, brother. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, and remember, guys, go to Mark, M-A-R-C, Cameron, MarkCameronBooks.com, uh, and that'll list, uh, and we'll also put a link to his website, too. You'll find all of his socials. You can find him on socials, so make sure you go follow him. Make sure you get his book, Breakneck, and Arliss Cutter novel. He's also got Jericho Quinn, in addition to writing the Tom Clancy novel. So what a prolific writer and a great guest. So this is us thanking you. And if you guys enjoyed this episode as much as we did, head on over to Apple, Spotify, hit those five stars. It's magic. We don't know how it works. Uh, it's it's like moose. It's like finding a moose in the middle of the Alaska wilderness. Such a treat. Uh, just hit those fives. I don't know how this relates to it, but I just wanted to put one more moose tie-in. So I'll also head on over to GameofCrimesPodcast.com. That's where we have all the information on Mark's book, uh, the rest of our show. Follow us on that thing they call social media, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But guys, you got to go over to Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. That's where we have a ton of fun. Our Q&A is coming up. If you guys haven't listened to that, um, we take all questions. We answer all things. 911, what's your emergency? The strangest call ever played on a podcast is coming up. You just got to listen to that. Case of the month. We just got through doing Warden of the Throne. So lots of good stuff. Uh, and even Murph, you know, the best part about this was we didn't even interrupt. We kept recording, even though Murph spilled coffee all over everything and had to have <laughs> Connie come in with paper towels to wipe his ass up. I mean, not wipe his ass, but wipe mess. his ass. Mess up. Wipe my, I'm sorry. Wipe my mess up. Yeah. And, and thank you, Connie. Love you, girl. <laughs> oh, thank, you. thank you very much. Well, hey, guys. Thank you guys for joining us once again and helping us play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all and moose-friendly game of crimes. 